Well, hello everyone. I hope you're enjoying the service so far. Uh, I'd love you to have your Bibles open to James chapter 2. You should have already read that during the service. Hopefully someone who you're meeting with, um, you've been reading that through. How about we pray and uh, we'll continue on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your word. And once again, we pray that in using the words of our Lord Jesus from Matthew 7, that we would put your words into practice and we'd build um, our houses on the rock. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, look, back in the good old days of uh, youth ministry in the 1980s when girls became women and, and boys became men and teenagers got injured, uh, we, we used to test our faith in each other by blindly falling back into each other's arms. They call it the trust fall, right? Although I love this picture on the screen because there's no way that the guy catching... That, there's no way this guy is catching this girl. He's, he's too far back, isn't he? He's not going to make it. Right? Not good for the trust fall. But for us back in the day, don't, think, don't imagine us all standing on the one level, you know, on the, on the ground together, falling back. No, 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 not at all. That was far too safe. Well, what, what we did, um, quite often the faller would be high up on a stage or even falling from the rafters, hence the injuries. But what it came down to, well, this is what it came down to. It came down to trust, didn't it? You, you demonstrate your trust in those who stand below you by falling. You show your faith in action by, uh, well, crossing your arms, leaning back, and over you go. Well, today we come to one of the most well-known passages in James, uh, James 2, 14 to 26. This is no standalone text. James really just continues on from where he left off uh, last week, being doers of the word, and he urges his readers to demonstrate trust, to demonstrate real faith, faith in action. However, first, James shows his readers Faith that doesn't work. It's the first point, if you've got an outline, uh, scribbling a few notes down. First thing I'd love you to write down, really, faith that doesn't work. We're going to focus on verses 14 and 19. Let's pick things up from verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. We can see that James continues in his practical teaching on caring for the poor, a brother or sister without clothes or daily food. Uh, continuing on from 1 verse 27 where he insists that true religion cares for widows and orphans uh, through to 2 verses 1 to 13 where he warns against favouring the rich in our gatherings. Clearly some of these Christians he writes to had not been showing mercy to the poor. Their religion was in real danger of, of not being pure and faultless. Their faith was in danger of being called worthless, to use uh, James's words back in 1 verse 26. Verse 14 is the key. Verse 14 is the key to understanding this whole passage. James doesn't think this hypothetical person has real faith at all. This person merely claims to have faith. 
you can see in verse 14. When James refers to this faith as such faith, he's making it clear that the faith he's talking about is a poor imitation of the real thing. It seems for some of James's original readers, faith meant little more than an intellectual acceptance or a just head knowledge of that God exists. Now see verse 19, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The, the belief or faith that this person has is not real trust in God and his Christ. It's merely some type of thinking that concludes there is a God. But even the demons believe that. And at least they shudder uh, in the knowledge of God. Just having a belief in monotheism is not what real faith is. You see, all this is a not-so-subtle dig at Jewish belief. The Jews regularly recited the Shema, that Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, believing that this was a magical guarantee of salvation. James says real faith is not just in their head. No, 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 it's the, it's the heart and hands as well. Now, James gives us a few reasons why such faith is, is not real faith. And first, faith like this is powerless to save, in verse 14. Can such faith save him? Well, the obvious answer is no. Second, James insists in verses 15 to 17 that a faith that blesses the poor but shows no mercy towards them, no action, that faith is dead. It's like saying you trust the ones below you in the trust fall, but you refuse to fall. Not going to do it. Well, thirdly, James rebukes his, lead, his readers for supposing that we can separate faith from deeds. In verse 18, he introduces this hypothetical objector who wrongly says we can choose between faith and deeds. Well, you have faith and I have deeds, you know, this person says. But James responds, making it clear that, that deeds are not an optional extra in the Christian life. They are part and parcel of the Christian life. They are proof of real faith. And so he says, well, I'll show you my faith by my deeds. The point is clear, isn't it? A faith, uh, for example, that is not compassionate to the needy or vulnerable is at risk, uh, is, well, is no faith at all. You know, according to the World Bank, uh, using the 2015 figures, 736 million people lived in extreme poverty, surviving on less than $1.90 a day. The UN Food and Agriculture Organisation from 2018 estimated that about 815 million people were suffering from chronic undernourishment. Now, to combat uh, poverty, governments around the world assign a, a portion of their gross national income, their GNI. It's a bit like the old GDP, gross domestic product. And they assign a portion of their GNI to overseas aid and development. Now in Australia, for example, that portion in the 2020-21 budget is 0.22% of gross national income. In comparison, uh, that's actually less than, than countries like New Zealand, the UK, France and Ireland. The average OECD uh, country's portion is 0.32%. Now Denmark, just for another example as well, um, further comparison, gives 1%, a whole 1% of their gross national income to overseas aid and development. Now what's the point of quoting these figures? Well the point is that Christians cannot simply rely on our taxes 
to make an impact on world poverty. We can't. The reality is that the amount going from our taxes to the world's poor is, is very small. So in real monetary terms, in Australia, for example, if a household is paying, let's say, $20,000 a year in tax, $44 of that goes to overseas aid. The point here is not about politics. Uh, if that's, you'd be fundamentally missing the point if that's what you walk away with. The point is Christians cannot rely on our taxes to help the poor and the needy. In light of, of all this, well, we, we need to think carefully how we spend our money. We need to think about our giving, don't we? Mere sentiment toward the needy is worthless. Saying, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, does nothing, says James. What counts is practical support, real faith in action. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Look, it's worth pausing for a moment uh, to, um, as we move on, uh, just for a moment to address a controversy in the book of James. And as it turns out, I don't think it's really that controversial at all. Throughout church history, some church leaders, Martin Luther being the most famous, argued that James's teaching on faith and deeds contradicted Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. And so we should treat James with a bit of caution. Personally, I'm not so sure about this supposed contradiction. Now, most commentators these days recognise that James and Paul were simply emphasising different things to different audiences. So Paul, well, Paul wrote mostly to Gentiles, didn't he? Who were Gentiles who were nervous that the blessings of the Jewish Messiah were available only to those who submitted to the laws of the Old Testament. Remember our series, if you were watching back a while ago, remember our series on Galatians and those Judaizers, we call them, who insisted on a gospel plus Christianity, uh, that, that Gentile believers had to add law, law-keeping, to the gospel. So to these Gentiles, well, Paul writes to them, Paul needed to emphasise that to be right with God, salvation, being saved, being forgiven, uh, comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. They didn't need to add any Old Testament law to make them righteous. But when Paul Paul said this, well, he never meant that we could have faith in Jesus without being committed to deeds, for example, loving one another. For Paul, just like James, works of love are the fundamental expression of believing in Jesus. So up on the screen now, you see Galatians 5 verse 6. For in, Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Faith in Jesus will always involve doing good works. Not because two things save you, right? Faith and works. No, simply because faith is trusting in Jesus, the one who called us to love our neighbour as ourselves. Now, James, on the other hand, wrote to a different crowd altogether, didn't he? His readers were were not nervous about missing out on the blessings of the Messiah, God's King, the Christ. They were Jews after all, right? They were the chosen ones. James didn't need to reassure them of their their status as God's children. He needed to remind them them of what Paul says in Galatians 5.6, that faith expressing itself 
itself through love is the right response to God's grace. So in James 2, 20 to 26, the second half of our passage today, James really is having a go at believers who think that it's possible to have faith in God without a commitment to Jesus' law of love. In the words of the reformer John Calvin, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. All right, well, it's on point two of our outline. If you're scribbling down some notes, faith that works. James now gives us two examples of faith that works. The first of those is Abraham. This is 2024, Abraham, the great patriarch. James asks, was Abraham's faith a faith without deeds? No, not at all. No way, he says. Abraham trusted God so much, he was willing, he was willing to sacrifice his son. You can read about it in Genesis 22. Abraham's faith wasn't just some head knowledge about the existence of God. It was a conviction made complete. See in verse 22? That, that, that is, his faith was shown to be real faith by his actions. It was made complete. James, uh, quoting Genesis 15 verse 6, confirms this. Abraham believed God and it was credited credit to him as righteousness. His righteousness was due to faith and his actions working together. He said to believe in God in the way the Bible speaks of belief is a commitment to action. That's the point. A commitment to action. Which is why in verse 26, faith alone does not justify. Faith alone is not real faith. Well, going back to our Calvin quote, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. Now, James's second example of faith that works, verses 25 to 26, is Rahab the prostitute. You can read more about her and what she did and, and, uh, and her faith in Joshua 2. Uh, although perhaps I think James is rubbing in a little bit here. It seems that a converted pagan prostitute, and that's, what, that's who Rahab was, had a better grasp of real faith than some of James's readers. All right, well, let's, let's tie a few things together, shall we? James would be horrified if we got to the end of chapter 2 thinking only about the doctrines of faith and works. We'll end up like Megamind. You remember Megamind from last week? Uh, our big full heads knowing so much out of proportion with our bodies, the doing bits. You see, as important as the doctrines of faith and works are, they're not the main point of God's word today. What's the main point? The main point is we meant, we're meant to be moved to action. That's the main point. We're meant to be moved to action. That's what real faith is. Now, there's no doubt that in James's main application, his action point, his main application is about showing mercy to the needy. We've seen that theme carry all the way through James. A religion that is pure and faultless, a providing for the physical needs of the poor. James clearly had, a, had spotted an inconsistency with his readers trusting God. They claimed to have faith, but without action, specifically caring for the, for the poor. Their faith was in real danger of being called dead. Friends, if we're honest with ourselves today, as we hear God speak to us through his word, we must be asking ourselves whether there are areas in our lives which are inconsistent with our trusting God. We're... What are we not giving over to God, trusting him in? 
maybe like some of James's readers, I'm not as generous as I could be in easing the distress of the needy. Or perhaps it's to do with how I deal with pressure. Or how I speak, I'm not trusting God and his ways are best. Or trusting God for my future. Or how I deal with hard times. Or my commitment to church or how I act at home. Is there an inconsistency? I say I have faith, I trust God, but I'm not willing to give these things over to God. I'm not, I'm not willing to trust God in this area of my life. There's a, uh, a great story I want to close with of the, um, the 16th century Russian Tsar, uh, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, he was a, a powerful and frightening ruler. Uh, terrible. Ivan the Terrible. So his nickname... Um, sort of sums it up. He conquered nations, he killed thousands. Well, the story goes that although he had many women, about the only thing he didn't have was a wife. So he sent his servants out to find him a wife. They found him the king of Greece's daughter. Well, she was a woman of much beauty and Ivan was very keen. But Ivan had a bit of a reputation problem. And so you can imagine how the king of Greece would have felt about this wild Russian Tsar taking interest in his daughter. Well, after some toing and froing, eventually the time came when Ivan and the beautiful princess would get married. But the king of Greece, who was a strict Greek Orthodox, would not let her daughter marry outside the faith. So he decided that Ivan could only marry his daughter if he would be baptised into the Greek Orthodox Church and undergo the training that goes with that sort of baptism. Well, Ivan said yes, he was in love. But he also decided that if he was to undergo this type of training, baptism, so should, he, should his top military soldiers and advisors and leaders. So they all went through the tra- this training for baptism. Well, the day came for the baptism. It's a beautiful day. There was Ivan, 500 of his top soldiers were in Athens, on the edge of the Mediterranean, thousands of interested spectators looking on, and of course the king of Greece and his beautiful daughter. So there they were standing in about, about waist-deep water, all 500, one of them, the Orthodox priests, began the service, reading parts of Scripture and so on. Then they read a section of the baptism that would cause great angst. Let me read it to you. No man baptised into the Greek Orthodox Church is permitted to be a warrior. Well, there was stunned silence among the men and Ivan. No one knew this was part of it. So Ivan and, and some of his military leaders and the priests quickly sort of gathered together, organised a meeting on the beach. Well, eventually, an agreement was reached. Ivan and his soldiers would be baptised holding their swords and shields above their heads. (laughs) It's a great story, isn't it? Friends, what things in your life are you not willing to get baptised? What areas in our lives do we hold out of the water? God can't touch that bit. 
What are the areas in our lives which are inconsistent with our trust in God? What are we not giving over to God and trusting him in? Friends, today is a day to trust God, to give your life, all your life, over to him, to be real with him and show real faith. For what good good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? How about I pray and ask God to help us with this? Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died for us on the cross. And we're so sorry that we fall short. We're sorry that we don't always get it right. Lord, today, help us to trust you, give our whole lives to you, show real faith in loving each other, Lord God, in showing, in trusting you in all, in all, the, all the parts of our lives. So Lord, we thank you for your word today. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.